This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, sitting in for Josh King, here's Jeff Smith. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on the POTUS channel. I'm Jeff Smith, urban policy professor at the New School, former Missouri state senator, and former federal prosecutorial target, sitting in for Josh King this week to talk about the trials and tribulations of New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. It's been four months since Bridgegate broke, and the good news for Chris Christie is that some of the nation's most prominent pundits believe that he's actually in pretty good shape. The bad news is that unlike some pundits, prosecutors are not persuaded by so-called independent investigations or confrontational press conferences, during which politicians are said to have, quote-unquote, regained their mojo. Pundits don't think like lawyers. They're focused on politics and the horse race. So it's no wonder that their narrative thus far has downplayed Christie's legal liability. But his real problem is legal, not political. He's unlikely to be brought down by Bridgegate itself, but could well be snagged by something stemming from it, in the same way that Monica Lewinsky had nothing to do with an ill-fated Arkansas land deal called Whitewater, and Al Capone went down for tax evasion. Federal prosecutorial tentacles would make an octopus envious. And so despite two marathon press conferences, a lengthy report produced after an internal investigation, and beheadings for much of his inner circle, Christie is actually in worse shape than he was when the scandal first broke. Why? Well, as I know all too well, years can elapse between the time federal agencies first begin probing a target and the time they actually bring charges. The recent lull in the Christie case may just be an illusion. Christie's continuing travel and strong fundraising as RGA chair is aimed at combating the impression of a weakening governor. But given the length, breadth, and opacity of federal investigations, this is like a surfer in the eye of the hurricane exhorting his pals, rain stopped, surf's up. While Christie traipses around with billionaires in Orlando and Las Vegas and meets voters in early primary states like South Carolina and Iowa, the gears of justice continue grinding away. When you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And for federal prosecutors focused on public corruption, the bigger the public figure, the larger the scalp. This week, we'll be joined by two people who have examined Bridgegate as well as anyone on the planet with the possible exception of MSNBC's Steve Kornacki. In the second half of the hour, we'll hear from the New York Times' Kate Zernecki, who spent the last few years on the Christie Beat in Trenton, New Jersey. But first, we'll talk to the New Yorker's Ryan Lizza, who recently penned an 8,000-word tour de force on the unique New Jersey political culture that shaped Chris Christie. Ryan, welcome to Polyoptics. Hey, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. So let's start out by talking a little bit about your recent piece in The New Yorker. Tell us a little bit how it came about and describe for us the unique political milieu in which Chris Christie uh, operates and was spawned. Well, um, what I tried to do with the piece is I tried to go back and, and look through Christie's long rise in New Jersey politics uh, with, a, with an eye towards um, whether this kind of uh, culture and behavior um, is something new or something that is just the way New Jersey work, politics works in New Jersey or is something, you know, 
specific to uh, to the way that Chris Christie's practiced politics in New Jersey. Um, and, you know, it's it's not really new. <laughs> and I would also say that it, there is a sort of, there is something about New Jersey politics uh, and, the, and sort of structural about the state that perhaps makes it a little bit more transactional and, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, political than, than some other states, and we can get into some of those reasons. Um, and there is something about Chris Christie and his approach to politics, uh, and when you, you go through his biography, um, you start to realize that it's not exactly shocking that, you know, he had some very transactional political appointees in all of uh, these places, including uh, the Port Authority, that uh, might have used the levers of, of government to uh, to punish someone. Twice, Ryan, already you've used the word transactional, which yeah. which to the ears of a federal prosecutor might sound a lot like illegal. <laughs> <laughs> and I want you to talk a little bit about the fine line in politics between being transactional and being illegal. Yeah, so this is I think about this is something I think about a lot. And over the years I've I think there are some cases and I think you'll probably agree with me where prosecutors have gone way too far and verged on, you know, what we used to call, you know, criminalizing politics. No. Uh, right? No. The, the founding, you know, <laughs> I mean, one argument is that we, especially here in Washington, and I, I can't say the same for every single state house, but here in Washington, we don't have enough politics. If that if that will shock listeners to hear that, but we don't have enough horse trading. We don't have enough transactions going on. That uh, you know, I always say that pork and, and transactions and favors of the of the lubrication that makes the gears of Congress work. And over the last decade, we've had a whole lot less of that. So that. You know, most of the big problems aren't getting solved um, because there's no horse trading that goes on. Now, on the other side, some of the uh, 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 you know some of the prosecutors who look at um, public corruption tend to see any kind of uh, transactional politics ever, anywhere with a very uh, jaundiced eye and, and look uh, to see if a, if a crime's been committed. And you know, that that it's not like that balance is new. That balance has been there for a long time. Um, but, you know, and Chris Christie, of course, uh, very famously, was a U.S. attorney uh, who was extremely, extremely aggressive. Now, some of the politicians he went, went after, um, you know, he had pretty open and shut cases. He, he, sent, people, uh, he sent people in with cameras and offered them uh, envelopes full of money in exchange for official favors. And very often, some of the, the politicians he targeted took it. So, uh, and you know, as, and as a U.S. attorney, he sort of made his name by going after these sort of low to mid-level, um, you know, kind of sad sack politicians in New Jersey um, who he got to take bribes. And that's how he sort of made a name for himself. Uh, he also he also used some of the laws that are on the books in very creative ways. Um, and you probably have heard this, but the. Um, the honest, uh, honest, honest services, services. yeah, and, was, and wire fraud as well. I know, like yeah. to get to get Jim Treffinger, one of the county executives. You know, he he stretched the, that statute beyond what I think most federal federal prosecutors had ever done before. Absolutely, and you know, uh, Fishman, the current U.S. attorney. Look, if 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 Chris Christie were the U.S. attorney investigating Chris Christie right now, <laughs> he would be screwed. I mean, Christie when he had someone in his sights. Um, 
he, you know, he, he, he went as far as he possibly could. Now, other people say, well, that's true, but he only went out, he only did it when he had an absolute clear shot, open and shut cases. Um, but the truth is, the, the, the U.S. attorney that succeed, succeeded him, uh, the U.S. attorney Fishman, who is investigating this, he doesn't have that same reputation. He hasn't made public corruption a top priority. He hasn't done the big, splashy sting operations uh, against politicians, uh, and he certainly hasn't. Uh, uh, he certainly doesn't seem to have any political ambitions, as far as we can see. Um, and so, in some sense, Christie is lucky that this is the guy who's invest- this is one of the people that's investigating him, and probably the most dangerous one, um, because he's not. Um, He's not seen as a as a political actor. When Christie was U.S. attorney, if you were a, if you were a Democrat in high office, um, you know you 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 attracted the attention of Chris Christie's U.S. attorney office, Corzine, uh, Menendez, um, you know a lot of Democrats in in, uh, in Hudson County. Um, he, he targeted all of them, and that's what helped him uh, become governor. This is Jeff Smith, New School professor, former Missouri State Senator and former federal prosecutorial target. Sitting in for Josh King this week on Polyoptics, we're talking to the New Yorker's Ryan Lizza. So let's back up a little bit and kind of approach this from from 30,000 feet for a moment. Talk to us about the bosses. There's a guy named George Norcross in South Jersey, a guy named Joe D, who's my county executive where I live in, right? in Essex yeah. County. Yeah. So but all accounts has done a great job in Essex. A lot of people love him. Yeah, no, uh, a lot of people where I live um, from both parties are, are a big fan of his. So, yeah, well, just like a lot of people loved the, uh, you know, the bosses that ran New, New Jersey in, the, in the, the turn of the century and who were undoubtedly corrupt. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So um, there's still a system in New Jersey, which is rare, I think, in the country, whereby county, pol- uh, county politics really dominates state politics because yeah. so much patronage comes through these county political organizations. Can you talk to us a little bit about how the the Norcrosses and and the and the Joe D's came to be and how they very quickly got right, if you will, with Governor Christie? It's pretty fascinating. I mean, in Jersey politics is uh, very old fashioned in a sense. It has very strong parties. You don't actually see uh, examples of people building up independent identities, self funded uh, campaigns that sort of completely bypass uh, the bosses. One of the few examples you can think of is Bill Bradley. Sure. When Bill Bradley, the, the NBA star, when he won statewide, he really didn't suck up to the to the, the Democratic power structure. He bypassed them. He ran against the machine, um, and he was famous enough in the state uh, to win. I mean, uh, Norcross actually told me it was like the, he, he was he, you know he was a young political op or he was sort of emerging as a political power broker at the time, and he uh, you know George Norcross for listeners that don't know is uh, out of Camden and is the the boss of. South Jersey, one of the most important political figures in the state, but uh, he went on about how Bradley's the only person he can ever think of in the state that could that could bypass uh, the bosses. Corzine, with all his money, um, the way he spent his money is he went around it and bought off the uh, the bosses. He didn't totally bypass them. He didn't try and set up, you know, separate operations. He went and seeded all of their operations with massive amounts of money. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't uh, he, he didn't really run an anti-boss campaign. The so the county, you know, uh, New Jersey it has a lot of municipalities, 565 different municipalities, um, and the county um, 
bosses, the county leaders and the Democratic and Republican parties are really, really important. If you want to be on the line, uh, uh, you need to you need to go through the the, the county uh, the county leaders. And in some counties, that person can be the county executive, as is the case in, in Essex County. Um, in other counties, it may be someone who's just sort of built up a, a network of political patronage uh, and and fundraising over the years, like George Norcross, who's actually an insurance executive and hasn't had an elected or party role, official party role, in, in decades. Um, what he really did, he, his is a more modern approach. He, he became famous uh, when he started funding candidates, and um, you know, the, the, this, his, his emergence goes back all the way to uh, the corrupt days in Camden County when uh, the ab scam sting that was uh, uh, dramatized in the movie uh, American Hustle. In the wake of that, when some of the Democrats were trying to clean up Camden, George Norcross was one of the people who came in uh, as sort of one of the reformers and, and sort of the, the FBI sting against some of the Camden leadership helped Norcross fill the power vacuum. That's how he sort of started out. And he's famous for modernizing politics in South Jersey. He brought in a young opposition researcher named Rahm Emanuel to help him, uh, to help him uh, win one, one campaign. And he started going out and recruiting candidates uh, and spending a lot of money. And frankly, he's, he's always been praised for finding candidates who uh, are, are pretty high quality, um, people that are not comp- uh, who, who certainly vote for his interests uh, on, on, on things that are particularly important to him, but who are not uh, necessarily... Uh, you know, completely his 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 minions. Um, his most you know probably his most famous story about Norcross in South Jersey is um, he his father uh, was slighted by a by a congressman once, and uh, he vowed revenge against this congressman. And four years later, he took him out um, by 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 running a sort of late barrage of negative ads out of the Philadelphia market. And uh, he really became famous by doing that because it was a congressman who was um, excuse me it was a a state senator, not a congressman. It was a state senator who was uh, really uh, seen as, as, as safe. And if I recall, if I recall correctly from your article, Ryan, there were some nefarious means by which that was done, and I was quite struck by the way you got Norcross to talk openly about that. Well, I don't want to say he did anything illegal because he, what he did is he he basically he I mean it's an amazing story if I tell can tell the whole story for a second he this guy prevented his father from being appointed to the Jersey Racing uh, Commission. Norcross's dad really liked the ponies, and he got uh, Governor Kane, uh, you know, who the ex Governor Kane, who was governor at the time, to appoint him. And then this local state senator said, "No, I'm not going to. I'm not going to let this go through." And they have a, you know, they have a system in, in New Jersey where you, if the state, if the local state senator says no, then the the appointee doesn't go through. Sure. And Norcross had this very famous meeting where he went to the he went to the state senator and said, "You know, I'd like you to reconsider. This means a lot to my father." And in Norcross's telling of the story, he you know he told them to, you know what, off and get out of his office and call them corrupt. <laughs> a few, and a few years later, Norcross, who was not that wealthy at the time, took out a I think it was a four hundred thousand dollar personal loan to find to recruit and run an opponent to the state senator, and uh, and he beat him. And one of the things he did, I think, this is what you're referring to. He um, he ensured he, that the disclosure wouldn't come until after the election. Yeah, right? but, but that's that's then that can happen based on the on the uh, filing deadlines, sure, right? Sure. So if you don't have to file until um, you know if the if the and at that time nothing was electronic, the the 
his opponent was not aware of how, Norcross is telling his opponent was not aware of how much money they 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 had uh, for the campaign until it was too late. So his opponent, his so the, the Republican state senator didn't know that it, this this guy was going to be so well funded because they put the money in the in the campaign account uh, as late as they possibly could and and hid it for as long. So. Um, that you know, I'm not. I, I don't believe he was telling me that he did anything illegal. But sure, it, sure, he, sure. He, he he was trying to explain that he did something very strategically smart, but you sure. know, within the within the rules. So that was one example. The other example, he beat a congressman once uh, because Rahm Emanuel found some Oppo research on him, and then they they knew the Oppo research was so good they waited until after the filing deadline for this Republican congressman uh, to to make sure that he was in the race and that so that the Republican Party wouldn't be able to take him out and find a new candidate. And as soon as he was they knew he was in the race, or shortly thereafter, they popped this uh, this information about him. Uh, he, he had lied about what college he went to. And <laughs> Rahm Emanuel, that was his first. That was one of his first jobs in politics was working for George Norcross and destroying this Republican congressman. Uh, so anyway, Norcross over the years built up a insurance insurance empire, uh, a political empire, and his brother ran the local uh, labor union. And so those were these three legs to this political empire. One is the insurance business, which he does, he does an enormous amount of state business. Um, he funds candidates who vote his interests in Trenton, uh, and then he's got a turnout operation through the local labor leadership that uh, his brother has long run. And so, uh, it's really, I mean, the piece was about Chris Christie, but uh, you know, you're right to point to the the, the the boss system as one of the most interesting parts. I mean, fr- frankly, at one point I thought uh, it'd be more interesting to do a full George Norcross profile. Uh, ab- <laughs> absolutely. Or a joint one between he and the North Jersey boss, who, yeah, you, who you got, I, who you got on the record to to compare himself unfavorably to the South Jersey boss by saying, "Hey, he's got twelve and seven, meaning meaning twelve assemblymen and seven state senators in his pocket, and all I got is seven and two. He's bigger than I am," which yeah, I thought was. Priceless. One of the most amazing quotes I've ever heard from anyone in politics. I mean, this, this is, I, I went into this as a sort of, you know, not, sort of, uh, uh, not, not someone who was an expert on the, okay. on the structure of New Jersey politics, but everyone had told me the bosses run things, they control legislators in Trenton. And I thought, well, you know, and everyone says that, but nobody's actually going to admit that, are they? And there's this guy, Joe D., Joe DiVincenzo, the uh, county executive for uh, Essex, which uh, I think is the, the most Democratic county in the state. I think Hudson yeah. might be a little more Democratic, but Essex, but Essex is pretty Democratic. Yeah, he, yeah he, he said that they produced the most Democratic votes. Is that wrong? Is it Hudson? Essex may produce more Democratic votes, but I think Hudson is probably a higher percentage, percentage. Democratic, but I could be wrong about that because I'm not a New Jersey is. native. But I That's remember my first encounter. I worked for Senator Bradley. Uh, 15 years ago, ah, okay. and I had asked state. him. I had asked him about his relationships with uh, with the party regulars, and he gave me sort of a sidelong glance and said, "We tolerate one another." Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> Which, very interesting. And so, yeah, so Joe D. In the course of this conversation, he came out and just said it. Yeah, I've you know I've got this many, and he and he was he was jealous. He was going on about how George Norcross is more powerful than he is, and it pisses him off. And he was going on about how. And George Norcross, again, is in South Jersey, which is about 25% of the population of the state, um, and has long been the sort of neglected part of the state. It's one of the reasons Norcross is very proud of what he's done, because he believes that his political power in South Jersey has made South Jersey uh, economically more powerful. It's made the, 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 the region get more than its fair share of funding from Trenton, and he, has, he makes no bones about that. 
And he's not, you know, he's not ashamed of that at all. Um, and Jody was going on about how the the coalition in South Jersey, the Dem- the Democrats that Norcross has el- have, has elected, they vote together as a block. Um, and I don't know if this happens every time, but the way Norcross describes it is when they have a contentious vote, when they um, have something that's really, really important to South Jersey, they get together outside of the, the you know the formal Democratic caucus in the in the legislature, and they come up with a common uh, uh, opinion, even if they disagree internally, they settle it, and then they vote as a block. And because the legislature is pretty evenly divided, even though the Democrats control both bodies, that means that South Jersey essentially controls, or the South Jersey Democrats control everything, because they they can swing their support to the Republicans and Christie on some stuff, or to the Democrats uh, on other stuff. And it makes it makes the it makes the person who's the most important uh, political boss in South Jersey the most important person, arguably, in the whole state because yeah. of that dynamic. It's, and so to get back to Christie, <laughs> Christie wasn't stupid. He knew he knew all this. Uh, and when he was coming up, and when he was when he became governor, um, he forged alliances with these two bosses to help him pass his agenda. Um, I want you to um, that it's fascinating study in power and strategy, but I, I want you to t- tell me if you feel like the Norcrosses and, and the Joe D's of the world, do they smell blood in the water here? You know, it's very interesting. I was trying to figure that out because their history is to discard the governors when they're finished with them. Oh, I mean, they were done with Corzine so quickly that the exactly. minute that they sensed he was done. And, and, exactly. he, and, and God knows how much money he had delivered to them off the campaign books. Exactly, and I, um, and I don't the mean the first it. campaign. Corzine apparently didn't spend as much in the second one, but in the first one, um, he wrote some really, really large checks. You know, when um, when McGreevy went down, you know, there came a point when McGreevy, the, when the bosses were finished with McGreevy, and he could no longer help them, and he, and and, they, and so the, the the bosses are sort of the permanent power structure, and the governors sort of come and go and get involved in all of these uh, salacious. Scandals and, and become fodder for late night comedians, um, and the you know and the bosses sort of uh, 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 stick around, and um, and are, are the sort of permanent uh, infra- political infrastructure. And so that's the great question: is you know obviously Joe D. He personally endorsed Chris Christie's reelection. Norcross did not uh, endorse Christie, but he um, tacitly supported him and basically withheld his support from the Democratic uh, candidate, Barbara Buono. And so, you know, what everyone has been watching for is when do these guys decide that Christie is finished and that they need to be looking towards the the next gubernatorial gubernatorial election and looking out for their own interests, and when do they decide that their closeness to Christie has become such a liability that it might cost them uh, in the next gubernatorial election. And so far, I, you know, I really... um, I really probed for that with with uh, with with those guys, and I didn't see it yet. And what I mostly saw was um, they think he's going to get he's going to he's going to get through this, and they're going to work with him for a little longer, and not quite focusing on uh, on 2017 yet. As you probably know, Norcross want he's never really had a governor. Um, he's never had someone in the governor's mansion who was his guy, and right now he wants Steve Sweeney. Yeah, Steve Sweeney, the Senate president, is a creation of George Norcross. It's the only way to put it. Um, and Sweeney is going to run for governor in 2017. And what uh, a lot of political observers in New Jersey point out is that 
his alliance with Norcross will certainly be an issue in the campaign, and his perceived closeness with Christie could also be one. And so there's a whole series of uh, Democrats who are lining up uh, in the, to run against Sweeney from the left in the primary. Probably the most prominent one is a young mayor of Jersey City, a guy named Steve Fulop, who's preparing an anti-boss, anti-machine, anti-Christie primary campaign against Steve Sweeney. This is Jeff Smith, guest hosting for Josh King on Polyoptics. We're joined by Ryan Lizza. So every great profile writer, and, and, and you're definitely one of the best out there right now, uh, has sort of a nugget, a kernel within their profile, no matter how long it is, that I sort of sense they want the reader to, to take away from it, that, that that's kind of the one thing that they want everyone to remember about the person they're profiling. And the anecdote that I got from your piece was the Tom Kane story. Tom Kane, the former governor yeah. who, whose door a, a 15-year-old Chris Christie had knocked on when Christie was young and wanting to get into politics. And Kane, I guess then a, a state legislator, um, invited Christie to come with him that night to a town hall meeting and, uh, and then became his political mentor. Um, Kane eventually becomes governor. Christie uh, eventually sort of rises with with Kane's help. And why don't you pick up the story from there? Yeah, this is the most important person in Christie's political life. Um, his calling card when he first runs for office in the, as a county commissioner, or what they call freeholder in New Jersey, is that he, you know, he's close to Kane and he worked on his campaigns. Um, when he becomes U.S. Attorney in 2001. As you, uh, as your listeners might know, that was a very controversial pick because Christie had no prosecutorial experience um, and very little, even you know, trial experience. Um, but George W. Bush picked Chris Christie partly because he was a, uh, a fundraiser for the 2000 Bush campaign. Um, but his mentor, Tom Kane. Uh, uh, wrote a letter uh, in support, uh, which was certainly uh, influential with the with the two Democratic senators who uh, who, who eventually did come to support Christie's uh, nomination. So, you know, once in office, um, I, you know, one thing that Kane told me is Kane sat with him, uh, had a private meeting with him right after he was elected, and sort of helped plot out the strategy that we were just talking about. In, the, in, the, in other words, you got to go and have good relationships with the Democratic bosses if you want to get anything done. Um, so he was an advisor, you know, he, he was an advisor um, right, uh, right up until at least the, 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 the first term. Now other people will say, you know, uh, after that, you know, Christie was his own man and Kane sort of was doing other things and sort of faded into the background. But they were very, very, very close on, on, during his re-election uh, Kane campaigned for him, raised money for him, and on election night, uh, he had a speaking role at the election festivities for, for uh, Chris Christie. What happens a couple of days after that uh, re-election, um, Chris Christie decides um, he wants to make a change in the leadership on the Republican side in the New Jersey Senate. And who is the leader on the Republican side? Tom Kane Jr., uh, Christie's mentor's son. Uh, and so Christie gets involved, gets himself involved with a coup attempt against his mentor's son, and he loses. Now, in hindsight, this is a really important moment because it shows this incredibly hubristic moment where Christie, winning 60% of the vote, thinks he can do anything. And a couple of days after winning 60% of the vote, he fails to take out um, the Republican Senate leader. 
Uh, and to a lot of people in the state uh, who weren't, you know, in, in hindsight, that was the key moment that showed that he wasn't as strong uh, as everyone but, thought he was. But, but you know what? It, but it made some sense to, to those watching closely because yeah. in a Democratic state, he understood that to get reelected with this huge margin to follow the George Bush 98 model and try to win with 60 percent, win big, show the world, you know, and the Republicans hungry to take back the White House, that he could win even in a blue state. He was sort of obsessed with getting Democratic endorsements and distancing himself from the state party, not putting his name with or doing a lot of events with Republicans, but actually seeming to do more events with Democratic electeds who had endorsed him than with Republicans who were running in competitive races. So I can imagine there wasn't a huge reservoir of goodwill towards him among the rank-and-file state senators at that moment. And, and this is where our, our two threads sort of come together here, his, the Kane thread, his great mentor, and the thread of the working with the political bosses. Um, he wanted to reach out to Democrats. He didn't really campaign with Republicans. And George Norcross and Chris Christie are believed to have had a very clear deal. That, um, Norcross said, you, don't, you stay out of my southern districts, and I'll stay out of your gubernatorial campaign, which is exactly what happened. Now, if you are a Republican who wants to take back the legislature, you're not liking that deal. <laughs> good for Chris Christie, not good if you're Tom Kane Jr., who's in the legislature, in the Senate, wants to increase the ranks of the Senate, so he, he's no longer uh, Senate minority leader, but Senate president instead. And oh, by the way, Tom Kane Jr. is also going to run for governor in 2017, so he wants to be helping Republicans, not Democrats, which is what Christie was looking for. And so this put the two men at odds strategically in that election. Uh, and it also really, really, really angered Norcross and Steve Sweeney, and especially Steve Sweeney. So the bosses that Christie is famous for working with, uh, and the Senate president Steve Sweeney, the cre- you know this creation of the of the of the Southern boss George Norcross, um, he wants Christie to take out Tom Kane Jr. So it's this amazing story where the Senate president. A Democrat goes to the Republican governor and says, let's conspire to take out um, the Republican Senate leader. Um, And, you know, he has an argument. He says, look, if you want to get stuff done, I need to have a Republican who I can work better with, and I can't work with this Tom Kane Jr. character. So really kind of an amazing thing with the Democrat and the Republican team up to pick the Republican leader. And that's sort of how Tom Kane eventually wins it, because he goes to his colleagues and and says, look, guys, we can't let the Democrats choose who, who, to, who to lead here, and that's what this is about. And that sort of rallies his, uh, his, his Republican Senate colleagues, and they have a vote, uh, and Christie is, uh, is, is calling for them to overthrow Kane Jr., uh, and Christie loses. We're talking with that Ryan. a lot. If, you're, if your listeners followed all that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was just going to say, um, either we're either going to have thousands of listeners who are going to find this mesmerizing, or we're going to have like three listeners by the end of the yeah, show. I hope, but, <laughs> I hope if they're interested at all, they'll go read the piece where all this is laid out very clearly. <laughs> this is Jeff Smith, guest hosting for Josh King on Polyoptics. We're joined by Ryan Lizza of The New Yorker, who wrote a fantastic profile of Chris Christie, uh, his rise and... Uh, um, remains to be seen what will happen now and, and, and what will happen now, Ryan. Where do you see Chris Christie in a year? I think everyone, you know, everyone's been asking me this since the piece came out. If he does not get indicted, and I think you are, you are someone that can speak to the chances of that and whether there's a clear case here or not, um, if he doesn't get indicted, I think he will run for president. Uh, 
Uh, I think he, he, he's, he probably looks at the Republican field and says, there's no one in that field. You know, maybe I'm damaged, maybe I've got some problems, but so does every other candidate. You know, you always have to, it's always, you know, people always talk about, oh, this person could never be president, they could never make it through the primaries because of issue X. Well, it's always compared to whom. Everyone's got their, their set of issues that they have to overcome politically. Um, and I'm not sure that um, these the, the issues that he has are so bad that um, that that it prevents him from from you know living his dream of running for president, which is you know which he's clearly been planning since at least 2012. Um, so my, my prediction is, absent the worst case, you know, an actual indictment, um, he he'll, he'll run as a as a pretty flawed and damaged candidate, but but someone with a non-zero chance. Well, I agree with you that if he's not indicted, he will absolutely run. Um, I'm, I tend to think that we're not going to get to see that scenario play out um, because uh, these, these investigations, once they start looking into any realm of your life, um, you know, they don't really quit until they're done. And uh, as, as a good friend of mine once said, actually, and he might have been quoting someone uh, long ago, but no man's life can withstand a full examination. It's, and isn't this the, I mean, this is why, you know, politics is often Shakespearean. Um, this is, of course, what so many dem- low-level Democratic politicians uh, who got caught up in Christie's campaigns uh, when he was U.S. attorney have, have argued and have complained about over the years. Uh, and a few of them, a few high-profile ones who really got their names dragged through the mud and had a lot of legal trouble, um, you know, without ever, without doing, without doing anything. A guy named Lou Manzo, who's just written a book about this, um, and uh, one of one of Corzine's uh, cabinet secretaries, whose name escapes me right now, but who was hauled off, uh, or who uh, sure. who had documents taken out of his house, uh, which made it look like he had done something illegal, even though he wasn't being arrested and he was never actually charged, he never actually did anything. But there's some irony in the fact that Christie is now getting caught up in one of these. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just conclude with you by saying this. In, in prison, they, um, people who get the newspaper, that they call it the, actually they call it the USA Yesterday because <laughs> you, you always get it late. But I bet there's no shortage of former New Jersey politicians, uh, rabbis, and other people who were ensnared in Christie's wide prosecutorial net who wake up every day gleefully looking for the, the new update on his struggles. So. Yeah, and I and did you did you have to if, if you have one more second? I, I think the press is focused, as you said in your introduction, the press is focused on the wrong thing, which is Christie's prior knowledge of uh, which is what Christie wants us to be focused on is, is did he have prior knowledge of shutting down those lanes? And if I'm hearing you right, you you think that that's probably not in the end what he's going to be indicted for. I mean, it's so less likely. So there's a crime called misprision of felony, which is basically a high-level official of either corporate or political who's aware of a felony having been committed but not reporting it. After um, the fact. Yeah, but they're not going to... After all this, they're not going to try to get a governor on that. Um, because that's it's, too what? Uh, it's, it's, it's just too ticky-tack. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's 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 as sort of minor a felony as, as you can get. But I just feel like the Samson stuff, um, where you clearly, you know, I think you, you have very strong circumstantial evidence that there was honest services fraud, that Samson did not recuse himself from all votes where he profited as head of the Port Authority. You know, and Samson, I, my gut is that it comes down to a question of whether David Samson wants to die in prison. And if he doesn't, he's going to have to figure out 
you know what he'll what he'll give up and the only thing that uh, the US attorney is going to want and the only thing that's going to be good enough for them is the governor so we'll see uh, if and you know obviously other than ta- other than governor Kane governor Kane may have been the big name ally and mentor of Christie but it seems like the one who's actually been closest to him over the years might be uh, Samson given how Christie has stood by Samson throughout all of this well, I think that's right, and their relationship is very different. I don't, as far as I know, the Cain-Christie relationship was not about Cain profiting from the relationship. With Samson, it's much more to start to end where we started, uh, much more of a transactional relationship. Well, it was an absolute pleasure to have you. I hope we can get a chance to sit down and, and talk some more because I could do this Anytime. for hours. Um, so Ryan Lizza uh, from The New Yorker, go check out his piece from last month. on. It's called Crossing Chris Christie. Thanks so much for joining us on Polly hey, My pleasure. Take care. Take care. History in the making. This is POTUS, Sirius XM 124. <laughs> This is Jeff Smith, new school professor and former Missouri State Senator, sitting in for Josh King on Polyoptics this week. We've been joined by Ryan Lizza in the first part of the hour from The New Yorker, and now we'll be joined by The New York Times' Kate Zernike, who has been covering Chris Christie in Trenton for the last few years. Kate, welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks so much. So, this week has been an eventful one down in Trenton, hasn't it? Yeah, we had testimony from the first Christie staffer, who's now a former staffer, but she, uh, Christina Renna, who worked under Bridget Kelly, and Bridget Kelly, of course, is the one who sent the famous Time for Some Traffic Problems in Fort Lee email. Uh, so Christina talked about the culture within the office, how she was afraid uh, when she had suspicions that there might be that, that her boss or people in the office might have been involved with traffic um, the tie-ups in Fort Lee. She was afraid of reporting it because she thought she might lose her job. So it was a really interesting peek into the culture of the Christie office. And she cast a lot of doubt on the notion that Bridget Kelly would have ever made this decision on her own, didn't she? Absolutely. And she was talking to a panel of legislators, all of whom had dealt with Bridget Kelly quite a bit. Because when Bridget Kelly first came to work for Chris Christie, her job was to uh, work with legislators to talk to them about bills, to ask them about their concerns about things. And the legislators came forward in their questioning and said, you know, what we remember of Bridget is that she would, every time we would talk to her about something, she would say, let me check with the governor's office. And they said to Christina Renna, does that, does that sound like Bridget to you? And she said, yes, Bridget was not someone to make a decision on her own. And she doubted that Bridget was the quote unquote architect of this bridge scheme. So why don't we back up a, a little bit out of this and just go through the, the cast of characters, the six or seven people who have worked for Chris Christie who might be most integral to this case going forward, if indeed there is a case. Uh, okay, so I would, um, I would say certainly uh, Bridget Kelly, of course, because she sent the email. So the, the central question is always, we know she sent the email. We don't know why she sent the email. We don't know who, she sent, who, who gave her approval to send the email. She sent it to a guy named David Wildstein, who was, uh, worked for a Christie appointee at the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, which runs the George Washington Bridge. David Wildstein received her email and said, um, I forget his response, but it was essentially okay, or sounds good, I believe was the, was the phrase. Um, th- any, any case, so David Wildstein is the uh, or, is, I think is it the was other just person got it. it. Got it. Thank you. Thank you. Anyway, it's all become a blur at this point. Um, anyway, David Wildstein says, got it. Uh, so David Wildstein is not the architect because he's receiving directions from Bridget Kelly. So if Bridget Kelly is not the architect, David Wildstein is not the architect. Who is? So obviously, we'd love to hear from the governor. 
uh, we'd love to hear from Bill Stepien, who's the governor's campaign manager uh, and was a very close political advisor. Uh, there were other people, Bill Baroni, who was the governor's top appointee at the Port Authority, uh, who exchanged emails with the governor's press secretary and with uh, the, the governor's handpicked chairman of the board, David Sampson, who I believe you've been talking about already. Uh, so those are some key people. But there are other people, too. Uh, this week, the legislature subpoenaed documents from uh, Mike Duhame, who's the governor's top political strategist, who was sort of managing the fallout of the scandal, particularly as it grew in November and December, finally into January when Bridget Kelly's email was exposed. So tell us a little bit more about, out of these ca- this cast of characters, who you think, if any, might be most vulnerable to prosecution and who, if any, might be most susceptible to flip on the governor? Hmm. Well, I think the most vulnerable to prosecution, if we look at who we know has appeared before the grand jury, we know that the people appearing before the grand jury are speaking about, um, or are people who are involved in the cover-up of the lane closures. So it's not... Bridget Kelly, um, who's talking about why she sent the email. And, of course, you know, she may not be subpoenaed because she's probably considered a target. But what the U.S. Attorney's Office seems to be focusing on is the cover-up, and in particular by the governor's chief chief counsel and by Bill Baroni at the Port Authority, um, and by the lawyer at the Port Authority, a guy named Phil Kwan, who uh, spent four or five days uh, coaching Bill Baroni before he appeared before the legislature in November and told the legislature, oh, this thing in Fort Lee, it was a terrible communication foul-up, but, you know, it was really just a traffic study. We'll do better on the communication next time. Nothing to worry about. Keep going. So we now know that there was no traffic study. So the question is, why were those people, you know, did those lawyers not probe enough to see that there was no traffic study in this? And if so, you know, what did they know about the cover-up? So I think that's, those are the people who the U.S. Attorney seems to be focusing on now, although, of course, you know, we don't know everything the U.S. Attorney is doing because those, those uh, grand jury negotiators Appearances are largely silent. We only hear about them unless, and if someone uh, yeah. says they've appeared for it. And, un- uh, and, un- so and unlike and unlike with the last U.S. Attorney of New Jersey, yeah. you just haven't That's had a lot case. of le- you haven't had a lot of leaks. No, you don't have any leaks actually. Um, so I think, but I think that they seem to be looking at the obstruction. The, the sort of buzz among New Jersey lawyers is that they're looking at the obstruction charge. Um, but we don't know whether that's a federal crime yet. We don't know, you know. And I think we're not going to go know for several months. Um, but I would say that Bill Baroni, who has been, uh, you know, among the people thrown under the bus by Chris Christie, might be someone who is inclined to work with prosecutors. You talked earlier about the possibility of David Sampson doing so. That's entirely possible. He's got some other issues, conflict of interest at the Port Authority. He knew a lot about what was going on. David Wildstein uh, said in previous release documents that Sampson had, had helped to, quote-unquote, retaliate yeah. when New York officials opened the lanes. So um, I think there's, that's sort of the crowd that we're looking at. Yeah, and, and Sampson also seems to be vulnerable to an obstruction charge. Just, uh, yeah, I guess so, if you're talking about the, uh, the retaliation. Yeah, yeah. Um, just some of the things on that email thread were uh, potentially problematic for him. Right. Um, if, if those things are, are further explored. This is Jeff Smith, New School professor, former Missouri State Senator, and former federal prosecutorial target, sitting in for Josh King this week on Polyoptics. We're joined by Kate Zernicki of the New York Times. So tell us, what's the vibe right now in Trenton? Do people, you know, I know the Democrats, especially, uh, how do you say his name? Wiz, they call Wisneski. him. Yeah, Wisneski, the chair of the committee that's investigating this. I know he he definitely um, senses some blood in the water. What do you think more broadly 
How does Trenton you know, feel? That's true that he smells some blood in the water, but I also think that, um, that that's sort of been true since January. I think he's also probably scaling back a little bit because he has been accused by Republicans and um, and and David Sampson of leaking too much to the press, of saying of sort of convicting before all the evidence is in. David Sampson last week said that he would cease cooperating with the legislative panel because he felt that Wisniewski had made biased statements against him. So I think there's a little bit of uh, it was interesting this week that it was a different it was the other co-chair Loretta Weinberg who uh, led off the questioning of Christina Renna um, inst- rather than John Wisniewski. Uh, so I think he may be trying to sort of cut back his, in what pub- he's saying publicly and not wanting to appear biased. And, and probably but, the optics are a little better to have an elderly woman giving yeah. the testimony against a woman, I would guess. Exactly. But, um, but you know, again, as I said, uh, either yesterday or the day before, they talked about, um, they subpoenaed documents from Mike Duhame. So that certainly felt like a move forward. The headlines in the papers this morning were, you know, that the panel had, had broadened it, its work. Mike Duhame had not been someone who'd been a target of subpoena before. Um, so I think, yeah, there's certainly a sense that things are moving forward. It does seem like the legislature is focusing on, um, focusing more on the actual orders to close the lanes, the sort of Bridget Kelly end of it. And the U.S. attorney seems to be focusing more on the cover-up, which, of course, extended several months before, Jan- you know, between September and January. Sure. And the cover-up being uh, what's easiest to end up, you know, what, what typically leads people to go away, um, which is what led me to go away. And, right. uh, and a lot of people um, as well, because it's, it's going to be difficult to find something to actually pin a federal crime on Chris Christie uh, for the actual... For, for what actually happened at Bridgegate. It's going to be very, you know, I don't believe that he knew about it beforehand. I think he probably learned about it either at the World Trade Center uh, that day or probably shortly thereafter. I don't think anyone who's been following the case very closely believes the story he gave at that first press conference that he had just found out about it. There's just too many holes in, in that story at this point. Would you agree? I do. I think the other thing we have to consider is that the governor has changed his story so many times. You know, initially, as you say, he said he didn't know about it until, you know, December, January, whatever it was. Then he said later that he knew about it in October. Then he said, of course, I knew about it at the time when the lanes were closed. Everyone knew about it. It was a traffic jam. Um, but most tellingly, I can't remember when it was. I believe it was in the beginning of February. He went on the radio and said, began defining it in very narrow terms and really moved the goalposts. So instead of saying, I didn't know anything about this, he said, I had nothing to do with the planning or execution of this. Exactly. That leaves a possibility that he knew, as you say, um, on September 11th during the lane closures yeah. and could have done something to reverse them. At the very latest, he knew in, I guess, early December when he called Governor Cuomo to have that conversation. I just can't imagine a governor calling another governor to talk about this. And basically from, uh, and we don't know this for sure, but I think the Wall Street Journal reported that part of that conversation was Christie telling Cuomo to tell Patrick Foy, the executive director of the Port Authority, to sort of call off the dogs. We don't want to look into this anymore. You know, sweep it under the rug. And uh, whatever the contents of that conversation were, you have to think that uh, it, it was a sensitive enough matter for Christie not to farm it out to an aide. And so um, I'm skeptical. I'm highly skeptical that that uh, Christie didn't know at that time. Right. No, I would agree with you. So can can Chris Christie two questions? Can he govern effectively uh, right now in Trenton? And second question, can he you know, can he credibly go to Iowa and South Carolina as he's planning to do in coming months and ignore this this uh, swirling investigation back home? Well, I mean, he's tr- 
certainly trying. He's, uh, you know, when Christina Renna was testifying, he was in Atlantic City. He was talking about homelessness, and then he came back and he talked about a commission to investigate the Port Authority. Of course, there already was a commission to investigate the Port Authority, but why not have another one? Because it might throw people off your trail. Um, uh, but I think, you know, I think he's certainly trying to continue governing. But what you notice is that he's not doing a lot of public events. There are many days when he doesn't have any public events. Uh, the other, the, some public events that he has, or in fact, all of them, there's no press availability. Um, so there is sort of a, um, you know, it's not quite a lockdown, but it's certainly a, a silence mode. And I think he's, he has a strategy to what he's told people is that he wants to kind of uh, stabilize his poll numbers back in New Jersey, which probably means doing very little, you know, not antagonizing anyone. Um, and then he still thinks that he is very much live nationally. He thinks he has his donors with him. So he, he's sort of going to keep, you know, keep quiet, keep low profile at home and continue these trips nationally to raise money. Um, so, I, you know, look, I think... You talked earlier about how you don't see the legal case against Chris Christie. I think the political case is already there. I think he can raise money for the RGA, but the question is, you know, can he can he run for president? I, I think that's – I don't know. I, I think there's there's a real question about that. And it's not just – maybe it's largely the bridge because the bridge is what people know about and people like scandals that they can understand in, you know, in a, in a cute soundbite. But look at other things. Three ratings agencies have now downgraded the state's debt. Um, Chris Christie has an unbalanced budget with less than 60 days left to go left to go to balance it. He's really in trouble. The state, you know, if you look at, uh, someone had a great story, I believe it was the Bergen Record last week, about what the RGA, the work of governors at the RGA is promoting around the country. The RGA, Chris Christie's the head of the RGA, but the RGA is not talking about success stories in New Jersey when it comes to the economy, because New Jersey has been not a success story. Things are really failing here. Things are lagging. Economic growth has been slow. Unemployment is high. Chris Christie does not have much of a record to run on. This is Jeff Smith sitting in for Josh King on Polyoptics this week, where we're talking about Chris Christie's trials and tribulations with Ryan Lizza of The New Yorker and Kate Zernike of The New York Times. Kate, um, and just to clarify, I uh, I do believe there's a legal case to be made. I think that uh, if, you know, based on specifically what happened that day on the bridge, it's going to be tough to get Christie himself. But I think that it's highly likely that they could end up indicting on some obstruction of justice charge related to Bridgegate or some other unrelated incident uh, that has stemmed out, you know, that we know about because of the original Bridgegate investigation, which is always the issue with federal investigations is you have no idea where they'll lead. Exactly. So you alluded to his donors. there have been a couple articles in the last few weeks, you know, Jeb Bush getting out there um, increasingly public about his contemplations for a 2016 presidential bid. A lot of these Wall Street donors who have gotten a little bit antsy with with Christie over the last several months seem to be gravitating towards Jeb. Do you think by the time it comes time for him to make a decision, maybe the rug's already quietly been slowly pulled out from under him? Oh, I think that's entirely possible. I mean, what people talk about is that Christie occupied this sort of sweet spot of American politics, right, or of Republican politics, where he was, you know, uh, sort of could appeal to the base, uh, sorry, could appeal to um, the largest, the broadest swath of the Republican Party. Um, and that space is really, you know, Jeb Bush has sort of moved into that space. Chris Christie was never going to be, you know, it, it wasn't a question of, you know, Ted Cruz or Rand Paul moving into that space, but, but someone like Jeb Bush definitely has. Yeah, with with Christie, it was sort of, um, you know, ideologically, he made enough feints to the middle uh, and had sort of, you know, with his immigration stance, um, I guess, Medicaid, you know, there were a couple issues where he had kind of 
uh, come towards the middle. And then he tried to put on this veneer of bipartisanship over the course of his reelection bid. But at the same time, he had enough of the YouTube clips in his past to be able to, you know, sort of point to his confrontational air and the fact that he went after the public uh, public sector unions and and so on and so forth. So, I, you know, I, I agree that uh, had none of this happened, I think most of these episodes of pettiness that we're now hearing about, um, we probably never would have known about many of them. No, I think that's true. I mean, certainly in New Jersey, um, people were, you know, I was hearing about them, and, and but it was always, you know, very hush-hush. People were very nervous. They were never going to speak about it publicly. Sure. Yeah, you were hearing about them, and, and the three words people would tell you before they told you were... Mm, off the off, record. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so, Kate, tell us, make a prediction for us. Where are we in a year? Oh, I mean, I think in a year we, we know more about what the U.S. Attorney is doing. Certainly the legislative panel will have wrapped up by then. Where are we within a year? I think Christie's political, I think his, his national ambitions are, yeah, you know, I would, I would say he's got a really, he's got a, a steep road to get those back on track. Um, I think this is going to be drip, drip, drip. I think we're going to hear from more aides. I think it's just going to raise more and more questions, even if it never touches Christie. I think there's just going to be enough doubt and enough questions about what he did when, which is sort of, you know, that's always the question that tangles people up. It tangles politicians up as who knew what when and and frankly you know again he's caught in a bind why didn't if he didn't know why didn't he know you know what was what was wrong with his management style why did he not look into this when he had all the hints early on yeah my sense is that every time one of these aides sees another aide or even suspects that another one might be flipping you under then he or she will understand that the value of his or her information will quickly decrease if they're not the one to give it. And so people, you know, I, I think, you know, as I think you and I have talked about offline, uh, there are people, maybe a Bill Baroni or someone like that, who might have had a deal cut before anyone had ever heard of the word or even coined the term Bridgegate. Right, absolutely. And I think, you know, I think in a year from now, we will have heard maybe from a Bridget Kelly, we will have, you know, heard from some others about about what happened, because I think certainly we've heard that David Wildstein has been uh, talking to the U.S. attorney. We'll hear more from him, I'm sure. So I think we're going to know a lot more. Well, for our sake, uh, since Kate and I are sort of neighbors, let's just hope there's not uh, traffic in Montclair after the show airs. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, Kate Zernicki with The New York Times, thank you so much for joining us. And Thanks, that Jeff. wraps it up for another edition of Polyoptics. Thank you all for listening. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. POTUS.